Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast with Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Pastor Bob conducts personal interviews with Christian influencers from around the globe, helping Christian authors, recording artists, CEOs, entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders, and yes, pastors and ministry leaders to get the word out about what they are doing to impact the world with the gospel. Our podcast has been rated in the top one half percent of all podcasts in the world by listennotes.com. So you know your message will be heard. Now, here is your host with today's interview, Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Hello, everyone, everywhere. Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads podcast. Today, we're so blessed that you're joining us. You know, we are well aware that drug addictions are basically a pandemic in our society today. It's not only a problem in major metropolitan areas and cities, but it it literally crosses all social and economic boundaries as well. I know because I was addicted to painkillers a few years back after almost seven years of use. and My father had a drug problem. One of my brothers did as well. As a police officer, I also arrested my share of people that was found to be in possession of drugs, drugs of various kinds. And I've also seen that a policy of lock them up does not mean they are able to get cleaned up. Many times these things are still available in the prison systems. Many times these people get released and go right back to what they've always known, the same neighborhoods, same friends, same environment. There's been a rehabilitation offered, or at least no rehabilitation has really made much of a difference. Well, my guest today is Christina Dent, founder and president of End It For Good. It's a 501c3 nonprofit formed in 2019. Christina Dent is a politically conservative Christian who supported criminalizing drugs until she became a foster parent and saw up close the the negative effects that the current system was perpetuating on those who needed the most help. She researched why drug-related harm was not decreasing and she became convinced it was because the criminal justice system is simply the wrong tool to be used for addressing the drug problem. In 2017, she began hosting book discussions in her home state of Mississippi using Joanne Harry's book, Chasing the the Screen, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Those discussions grew into events with hundreds of people attending, which led to End It For Good being formed, which is now an education and advocacy organization providing citizens with opportunities to learn more about the root causes of drug harms like crime, addiction, overdose deaths, and consider some alternatives to the punitive approach that we've used for decades. Christine is a writer, a TEDx speaker, a perpetual question asker. She grew up in a conservative Christian home, earned her degree in biblical studies with an emphasis in Christian ministry from Belhaven University. Help me welcome to the program, Christina Day. Christina, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the program today. I do appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. I'm just so honored to be with you. Amen. Now, the first question I always ask, other than that brief information I just provided, can you tell us in your own words, who is Christina Dent? Oh, I am a follower of Jesus, first and foremost. Um, I'm a wife and a mother of three boys, and I am um, now part of this nonprofit, End It For Good, uh, something I never thought that I would be doing. Um, I, I remember telling someone, uh, during the years that I was staying home with my boys, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think I'm ever really going to do, um, any kind of job again. I, I just, I love, I've always been a real passionate person. I'm kind of a, a person who's driven by, um, 
causes and things that I just get really excited about. And I said, you know, I just, I think I'm always going to want to do that kind of work. And probably that's not going to happen in an actual job. That's going to be just something I do, you know, volunteering in ministry. I've done a lot of leading ministries in the church just as a lay leader. And, um, and now I get to combine, um, my, my work, uh, while my kids are school age now, and this thing that has become this kind of burning passion in my soul to invite people into this conversation about rethinking what we're doing with drugs and addiction. So I feel like I, I wear a lot of hats. Um, my family, my family hat is, um, always, uh, secondary to my, my daughter of Christ hat. Um, but is, uh, is high up there. And I thankfully have been able to, to work my work schedule around my kid's school schedule and all of those things to try to, to make them all, um, fly at the same time. So the Lord has been really exceedingly gracious to me and giving me an opportunity to do what I feel like he's called me to do, um, at the same time as continuing to allow me to, to do the other things he's called me to do. Amen. Amen. Well, let's back up a bit. Now, prior to 2014, you had a a certain view of how the world worked and some preconceived ideas of what was needed to fix the drug problem in America. Can you share that, Christina Dent, back then, what she saw and how she viewed the the role of the criminal justice system at that time? Absolutely. Um, Yeah, like you mentioned, you know, I I grew up in a very um, conservative and evangelical Christian home, and I still have um, many of those same values today. And so I saw the world um, not so much because I was explicitly taught um, people who use drugs are bad people. I don't remember anyone saying that to me, but that was that was what I got is these are bad people that you should be afraid of, um, people we don't trust, people we don't want in our spaces. Uh, we, we want them to get cleaned up first, and then they kind of will be welcome where we are. Um and so I, I just thought, you know, drugs are bad and drug use is bad. Uh, outlawing drugs is obviously the right thing to do. I never really thought about it beyond that, um, partially because it was never really part of my life. I didn't use drugs in high school. Um, I didn't have friends that were using. Even drinking alcohol was not part of our experience at all. Um, in college, the same thing. You know, I was getting a Bible degree. We we weren't out using drugs, um, although I'm sure there were people there who were, but it just was not part of my experience. And so I, um, I really had just kind of that simplistic view of how we handle drugs, and it never came home to me what that actually means in the world and in the lives of real people and families until we became foster parents. Amen. So in 2014, what happened to begin to change your perspective on things? So we started fostering, um, and our, uh, second foster son that came into our home, um, came straight from the hospital after he was born and his mom had been using drugs while she was pregnant. So he was automatically removed from her custody because of her prenatal drug use. And he came uh, to us and, um, I didn't know anything still about addiction at that point. I had begun to learn about childhood trauma, uh, but that had not um, extended to what does childhood trauma do to us kind of long-term and the kind of risk factors it gives to us. Um, And so the only thing I could think was clearly this mother doesn't love her child because what mother who loves their child would use drugs while they were pregnant. Uh, There's I've no Mm -hmm. place in my mind for this. Um, So I brought Beckham to his first visit with his mom at the local child welfare center and um, popped his car seat out of my car and turned around in the parking lot. And there is this woman running across the parking lot 
Um, and she's weeping. She runs over to me and she just starts kissing this little baby, talking to him. And this is his mom, Joanne. Um, and my first response, Robert, was suspicion. I really thought, uh-uh, this isn't real. This is this is a big show. She wants me to think she's a great mom, um, but this can't be true. It doesn't fit with what I think I know about drugs and people who use them and addiction. And so I left Beckham for his hour of visit with her and came back. And I'll never forget the, the picture I walked into in that tiny little visitation room um, in this child welfare office of her sitting on this couch um, and Beckham was sleeping on her shoulder. Um, and she is just sitting there like in heaven. You can just see it on her face. This just heaven of drinking in her son. She's not playing on her phone. She's not nothing. She's just enjoying being with her son for the one hour she gets to be with him. Um, and so she gave him back to me. He came back to our house and she left for inpatient drug treatment in another part of the state. And she would call me every day. I had agreed that she could have my phone number. So all during this time is kind of this war for me because there's a part of me that's like, don't trust her. She's a bad person. And this other part of me that's like, but but you're in foster care to support vulnerable families and children. And if this is a mom who, who is trying to maintain a bond with her son, you should support that. So all in my, my mind is this, I don't want to, but I think I should, I don't want to give her my number, but I feel like that's the right thing to do. Um, so she would call me every day and ask me for, you know, any kind of updates on her son, what's he doing? What is he, you know, and he's like five pounds, nine ounces. All he does is eat and sleep and nothing else. Uh, but she wanted to know everything about him. And she would ask me to put her on speakerphone and she would sing to him over the phone. Um, I, I can just hear her to this day singing, Jesus loves me over my speakerphone to her son. Um, and that really began to deeply shake this um, long held belief that people who use drugs are bad people doing bad things. Um, and that set me on a journey of trying to understand What's really happening here? Because the more that I got to know Joanne, the more I realized she is a mom like me. She loves her son just as much as I love my son. Um, she, you know, the more I got to know her, the more I realized our backgrounds were actually really similar. We were both homeschooled kindergarten through high school. We both grew up in Christian homes. We were both one of four children. We grew up in the same town. Um, so many similar things and I saw in her a very similar mom who is also, um, you know, she's struggling with this complex health crisis, but it's not because she feels any differently about her son than I do. Um, and in many ways, I saw in her a, a level of vulnerability and honesty that I didn't see in myself. You know, when mm. I have been willing to be humbled in that kind of way and allow someone else to see the depth of my pain and my love. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I would have sung over the phone to my kids. I just think I would have felt like, Oh, that's a, that's a little, that's a little much. I don't know. Um, and yet she did, she just put herself out there and said, this is, this is me. And this is where I am. Um, and that began to shake, not just what I thought about people like Joanne, um, and beginning to see them as people like me, um, but also kind of taking one step further and saying, but wait, I know Mississippi's got the second highest incarceration rate in the country mm -hmm. and the United States has the highest <clears throat> incarceration rate in the world. In the world yeah. What are we doing? Because I know we're putting people like Joanne in prison 
every single day for the same issue that she's mm-hmm. struggling with. Um, yeah. And that began yeah. a journey of learning for me that um, ended up in uh, in really reshaping how I think about drugs and drug policy Amen. and what could help us save lives and families. Amen. And you did a TEDx talk on this and it was awesome. And I'll be putting a link <clears throat> to the TEDx talk in the show notes down below so our listeners can access it as well. And But you hit on some very dramatic points. I, I loved how you did the comparison of the war on drugs with prohibition in this nation back in the early 1900s. Can you briefly go over that for our listeners? Yeah. So one of the things I learned on this journey of learning um, was kind of what happens when you criminalize a substance. So kind of big picture, zoom way out, try to get past the the fear that we have of substances and drugs to, you know, let's just try to, to put that fear on a shelf for a minute and just figure out what's actually happening here. So when we had alcohol prohibition, Uh, We prohibited alcohol and we saw a couple of things happen. Um, Alcohol consumption did not go away, but we suddenly had this huge alcohol market that went from a legal regulated market to an illegal market. So underground markets like that, there have no quality control, uh, no law and order, nothing. It is a complete free for all. It's anyone selling anything to anyone, no age restrictions. Um, and so we saw a rise in violent crime. You see people like Al Capone, who is making millions of dollars while law-abiding businessmen are closing their doors. Um, so you see that today in today's drug prohibition of other drugs um, like uh, cannabis still in Mississippi, it's um, prohibited here, uh, heroin and cocaine and other, other substances like that, um, psychedelics. So we have um, the the move from a legal market that's governed by law and order to an illegal market that is a complete free-for-all. Um, and what I learned is really the vast majority of all crime that we have in the world today is caused by drug prohibition, not by the drugs themselves. It's not caused by people taking a drug and then doing something crazy because they're out of their minds. It's caused by this underground market where you have $500 billion a year that's up for grabs. You have consumers all over the world um, wanting to pay for drugs that are currently illegal. And then you have that huge pile of money. Well, who is going to get that money? Because somebody's going to get that money. That is human nature. We can be certain there are always going to be people who want a piece of that pie. Um, It's only people who are willing to break the law. And the only way they have to protect their turf is by being increasingly violent. And the only way they have to settle disputes is through violence. Um, so for somebody who grew up in an unsafe neighborhood where I grew up, um, that really struck home for me because I dealt with a lot of anxiety as a child about safety. Um, I, every night laying in bed, I would hear gunshots, police sirens. And now I look back at that and think if I had grown up in a world where we did not have all of this extra crime from drug prohibition, my childhood would probably have been pretty different. Uh, my, my experience of the world around me. So we have that increase in crime. Then you have problems with um, quality control. So during alcohol prohibition, you know, people are cooking up whatever they want to in their backwoods or their basement and selling it. Um, People have no idea what they're buying. There's no labeling on it that says, you know, hey, this has been through a quality control process and you know what's in it. Like you can get today when you go buy alcohol, you can know exactly what proof it is. Um, And so we have that same lack of quality control with drug prohibition today. And that for a lot of people, I think is, is the, is a key piece because it is how we understand what's happening with our overdose crisis. 
Um, in 2020, we lost 100,000 people to drug overdoses. The vast majority of them died not from taking a, a pill they got from their doctor and overdosing on that. They died from taking contaminated substances that they bought on the street that they have no, no way of knowing how to dose that appropriately for their body because it's a, it's a baggie of something and yep. they're taking what they think will get them high. Um, and increasingly it's killing them. And so, um, you know, alcohol prohibition didn't see uh, that, that level of harm from contamination in today's drug market that absolutely is there. And the, uh, the margin between getting high and death is razor thin now. Um, and we see more and more people who are dying, not from the drugs particularly, but from the prohibition that is keeping them from being able to have any knowledge of what they're actually taking. Yeah. And in your TEDx talk, you referenced how uh, the potency goes up because they're trying to keep the, the uh, amount small so they don't get caught with it. And you discussed the, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, smuggling alcohol into sporting events. You know, I never thought of that in mm. the terms that you shared in your TEDx talk. Can you share how that analogy also relates to the drug problem we're seeing on the streets? Yes, I think most people, if you've ever been to a sporting event, a football game or something like that in a stadium where um, alcohol is prohibited on the inside, you've seen the forces of prohibition in action in real time today uh, with alcohol because when people are outside tailgating, um, they're drinking beer. That's the most popular drink, which is, you know, 5% alcohol by volume. It's, it's low, low potency, if you will, alcohol. Um, but when you have prohibition that's in place at the gates of the stadium and you go inside and you start figuring out what people are drinking, they're drinking hard liquor. They're now drinking 45% alcohol by volume which is not because their taste changed. It's not because they like to tailgate with beer and they like to drink hard liquor during the game. It's because they don't want to smuggle a six pack of beer into the game. If you have to smuggle, you need the biggest punch in the smallest package. And so prohibition incentivizes higher potency substances because they're easier to smuggle, which is exactly what's happening with our fentanyl crisis right now. Yeah, A lot yeah. of people now have heard about fentanyl. Um, it is a synthetic opioid. It can be, you, you don't have to have a plant to manufacture it like a, a physical God made plant. Uh, you can manufacture it in a, a factory. Um, and you, so it's extremely potent. It's 50 to hundred times more potent than morphine. Um, and I heard one person make the analogy. It, it used to be that you had to smuggle a whole boatload of heroin. Now you can just smuggle a suitcase worth of fentanyl. Um, so, so fentanyl on the streets is a product of prohibition. There was a, a, a financial incentive to make a substance available on the street that is more and more potent. Um, and fentanyl fits that bill perfectly. Now, the problem is that when you have a, a substance that's that potent, now you have an even more razor thin margin between getting high and dying. Um, mm -hmm. But if we're going to address the crisis of fentanyl deaths, which is the vast majority of opioid overdose deaths involve fentanyl now, almost 85% in 2020. So this is not a, this isn't an a prescription drug crisis that we're in when we're talking about overdoses. This is a crisis of street drugs that people are getting. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. to, to address that, I, you know, you can do things like overdose prevention 
sites or distributing Narcan, which is the opioid overdose reversal medication. Um, but if we're going to significantly decrease those numbers of people who are dying, there has to be some way to, to stop them from using drugs they bought on the street. And you, you can't do that by force. You can't just force right. people and you can say, don't do that. Um, they have to have some sort of access to non-contaminated substances where they do know what's in those uh, potency and purity. And they can make sure that they do the, the number one most important thing for somebody who's using drugs, which is staying alive. There's, mm. if you're dead, the chances of stopping, of um, getting sober, of building a thriving life, uh, that's over. You can't do yeah. that. And those yeah. families can't ever recover from that lost loved one. Yeah. That that's a, Amen. that's a permanent loss. Um, and, and we don't want that. That's, you know, we're, right. we're believers. We, you know, God created every person in his image. He, he wants thriving for us. Um, and that for me is, has become part of this process of rethinking, you know, as someone who believes deeply in the sanctity of human life, um, can I support policies that are, whether or not they are intended to, the outcome of those policies is that lots of extra crime is happening and people are dying from that. And mm -hmm. lots of extra overdoses are happening and families are being just torn apart um, yeah, permanently know. through that. And I, I just couldn't, ended up deciding I can't support that anymore. Well, you also referenced what the nation of Portugal did in, in their war on drugs, but they went about winning their war in a very different way than we have in the United States, and they achieved a very different outcome. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Portugal, 20 years ago, um, in 2001, they just passed the 20th anniversary of this policy change. They had a huge heroin overdose crisis. Um, they had lots of their population was addicted to heroin. They were losing lots of people to overdoses and they said, we have to do something different. And, um, they commissioned a group to come back with whatever policy change they thought would address this crisis. And they basically agreed to it kind of ahead of time. What you tell us to do, if it's evidence-based, we'll do it. Uh, we have to address this. And so they came back and they said, what we need to do is, um, stop arresting consumers of drugs, no matter what the drug is, like arresting people who are using drugs is not the right thing to do. Um, and instead, we need to put our resources into uh, evidence-based solutions for addiction. So what do we know about people who are struggling with addiction? How, what do we know about how they build a thriving life and exit that addiction? Well, we know that people need uh, purpose and meaning and community. And so they started with, um, you know, housing opportunities for people, uh, job skills and helping them find employment, making um, uh, treatment for an addiction more accessible. So they, instead of saying, we're going to focus on the drug and try to rid Portugal of the drug or focusing on the consumer and saying, if we just arrest enough consumers, maybe we'll scare everyone else into not using drugs. That, that doesn't work. It hasn't worked. It can't work. Um, people don't make that decision based on, you know, is this or not, um, you know, do I know someone who's gotten arrested? They use drugs because they're, they're making them feel better in some way. And maybe that is somebody who has experienced a significant amount of childhood trauma and has found that um, the, uh, they can self-medicate those impacts mm -hmm. through substance use. We know that trauma is 
uh, one of the highest drivers of addiction. The more trauma you've experienced in your childhood, the higher your risk factor of addiction and the deeper the addiction um, is more likely to be. And so Portugal said, we're going to stop doing that. And we're going to focus on the reasons why people use drugs and what could help them actually exit those addictions. So um, the outcome was staggering. So they stopped arresting consumers. So if you're caught today in Portugal with heroin, you're not arrested for that. Um, They give you the opportunity to go to treatment if you want to. If it happens multiple times, you can get a, a financial fine for that. But they really have shifted away from a punitive approach and said, we're just going to try to help people build lives that they want to be fully present for. And what they found was um, their uh, injection drug use rate dropped in half over the next couple of years. Their addiction rate has dropped by a third over the 15 years after that. Um, And their drug-related crime dropped, which makes sense because you have, um, and you probably know this as a a former police officer as well, the vast majority of all property crime, people stealing whatever from you, is caused by people who are in active addiction trying to get enough money to support that addiction. Um, Addictions to drugs on the street are very expensive. It's not because those drugs are expensive. Heroin is not expensive. It can be made for pennies. Um, But when you have the forces of prohibition and the risk of smuggling, uh, that adds, you have to pay a premium for it now. So you have expensive addictions and you have people trying to get money for those expensive addictions. Um, And so they saw a lot of their drug-related crime dropping. Prostitution as well, which again, as a believer, it just breaks my heart to see something like that happening. The vast majority of prostitution is women in active addiction who are trying to get enough money to, um, to feed that addiction. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just looking at that and what Portugal has done by, they did not legalize their market there. And I would say that's where we get the most positive benefit because they still have the crime related to the underground market. Um, They still have the contamination problems in their substances because they're not regulated. They're still, people still buy them on the street, but even just addressing consumer harm, the harm of arresting people like Joanne and putting them in prison by not doing that anymore and addressing it as a complex health crisis rather than a criminal justice issue has given them significant positive impacts. You know, I just think, Robert, what if, so, so right now it's about one in three American families that have someone in their family who's addicted Portugal has seen a one-third decrease in addiction since they did this. What would it even be like for America for us to see one out of every three families currently struggling with an addiction in their family to not experience that? That yeah. would, I mean, what we would consider that like the policy win of the century. Um, <laughs> and 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 yet that's what Portugal has found. They're a small country, small scale. Um, but we, we know we've watched it happen for 20 years that it's possible to handle drug use as a health issue and the outcomes are far, far better than they are. Hey, folks, Pastor Bob here. We're all out of time for today's portion of this great interview with Christina Dent. As her foundation, her organization, End It For Good, is working to combat the, this huge, huge drug addiction problem in the United States. But as she's been pointing out, you know, there is not a war on drugs that's been successful. And that means we need, I'm telling folks, based upon my military training and all that, when the battle you're fighting isn't working, 
you need to back up, regroup, reevaluate, and come at it with a different strategy. And that's what Christina is offering. You know, her organization, End It For Good, is making these strides in these communities, and she's trying to educate the politicians and those who, who are in charge that we can do this if we collectively come together and help those who are being affected by this, the drug users themselves. But you can't just put them in jail and ruin their life. Folks, you need to support Christina Dent and her organization, End It For Good. Offer support. Click the Donate tab on our website. Send along a love offering and a financial gift. There is no amount too large or definitely too small. If every listener here listening to my voice right now today would just send in you know, 5 or $10 together, this would make a huge, huge difference in the work that she is doing. And I encourage you to go down on the show notes, click the links right there, get in touch with Christina Dent right now, and send along that offering of support. And be sure you put it on your schedule to come back and listen to part two of this interview because it is awesome. Okay, till then, this Pastor Bob reminding you, be blessed in all that you do. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Kingdom Crossroads podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when another episode is published. With over 800 interviews and 1,000 published episodes, Pastor Bob is known as a podcasting expert for helping others to create their own podcast to share their messages with the world. Please visit our website at www.podcastersforchrist.com. That web address again is www.podcastersforchrist.com for more information. Until next time, be blessed in all that you do. Are you a Christian entrepreneur, coach, or author with a message that needs to be heard? Picture this, your voice reaching thousands, your story inspiring hearts, and your business flourishing like never before. Introducing Faithcasters, the ultimate platform that connects faith-driven professionals like you with the power of podcasting. Become a sought-after guest on Faith-Based Podcast. Share your unique insights and connect with like-minded individuals who share your passion for faith and entrepreneurship as well. Imagine your expertise reaching a wider audience, expanding your network, and propelling your business to new heights. Well, it's all within reach with Faithcasters. So don't wait. Take the first step today on your journey to greatness by visiting our website at faithcaster.org. That's faithcaster.org. Join the Faithcasters community now and unleash the full potential of your faith-driven enterprise. You do not want to miss this opportunity. Faithcasters, where faith meets podcasting and your dreams become reality. Visit faithcaster.org. Let's soar together. And remember, anyone can be a podcaster, but only a Christian can become a faithcaster. Faithcasters, your voice, your platform, 
your success.